name is May. How are we doing? Okay. Good morning, everyone. Well, my name is Melissa. I'm one of the pastors here. And me this morning is away on retreat. I've gone this weekend. And I've been away. I was not with us last week. I was on a week-long vacation. And I just want to say from your pastoral staff, we're so grateful that you support us getting away and getting refreshed and time to retreat and learn and grow. You're generous with us, and we're super grateful, and we benefit from that. And while I was away, um, I was in a pretty special, magical place. Um, it's a longer story. Bigger and short of it is that one of my closest friends is marrying someone from the continent of Africa. So figuring out their international wedding is tricky, to say the least. And they decided that they're probably going to have a very small ceremony in a neutral third place sometime in the future. But in the meantime, to celebrate, she gathered eight of her closest girlfriends, and we went to the island of Antigua in the Caribbean for a week. Pretty incredible deal, I would say, that I got to do that to celebrate. And I, I would imagine that never again in my life am I going to have the opportunity to sermon prep while laying on a Caribbean shore. It's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen again. I mean, I downloaded the scripture. I'm listening to John 14. It's all good. It's all good. Sitting on a few bronze. Just about as bronze as I'll get. So shake it in. Shake it in, Lord. Now, it was an amazing vacation. But I'm going to say that even while away, I miss you when I'm not here. It feels like a long time when I miss just one Sunday. And that's because you're my family. You make up such a significant portion of what's my dear community that I move through life with. And I had the realization the other day that I graduated from CLMU in 1999, which makes this my 20th anniversary year. Sounds incredible. But living here for 24 years means that I also have some pretty deep roots in the San Diego community. And they raised my friends that have lived here with me for all these years, that have left and moved back, are also really significant roots of my community. My family is rooted in San Diego. My parents were raised here. My grandma's lived here her whole life, all 91 years. And recently, she became my roommate. So I get to share daily life with my grandmother. And my sister's just about a mile, if that, down the road from us. They also are a significant source of my community. So you take all this, all these different communities of people, and you sprinkle in that I've been single for my adult life and that I'm extremely extroverted, like off the scale. Most of you know that. And what you end up with is me, a highly social creature who needs to move through life with a crew of people. And it's on this point that I feel like Jesus and I really get each other. Jesus did too. He was moving through his life with a crew of people, constantly surrounded by his disciples. And there are plenty of stories of Jesus retreating to solitary places to be alone, but there are more stories of him surrounded by others. And he moved in circles of people, smaller groups, certainly, but often found himself speaking to hundreds, if not thousands, of, cr of people in a crowd. Even in his darkest times, I would contend him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his lowest point, he took friends with him. And he asked them to just be nearby, and at the very least, just don't fall asleep on me. Which Jesus is kind of annoyed with them when they do, which I love, because I think it speaks so much to Jesus' need to have friendship and nearness in a time of despair. 
And then conversely, we get this story when Jesus is on the boat and he's the one sleeping. And I think that's pretty remarkable as well, that he's in this small space with his friends who are working hard, and he's the one sleeping. And it takes some comfort and trust to sleep in the midst of your family. Now, I, I often would do this when I was little, and I'm going to just interject this, because the story of Jesus sleeping on the boat makes me think of this, that uh, I would often, when I was really little, be found by my parents, when they would turn the TV off and the lights off and go back to their bedroom, that I would be found asleep at the end of the hallway on the floor. And every time they'd wake me up, they'd say, what you doing? Are you sleepwalking? And I was like, no, I just wanted to fall asleep and listen to talking and just be near you and fall asleep near you. And that memory came to me. I mean, it happened a lot. And I was thinking about Jesus. That was kind of my Jesus in the midst of the boat sleeping on the floor. That's what Jesus would do when I was little. So it shouldn't be a surprise at all that I am particularly drawn to these kinds of stories of Jesus' life that we find in John 14 that Kelsey read for us. Stories, good long passages where Jesus is hanging out with his best friends and we get a special window in on their conversation with each other and on the dynamic that exists among them. John is really generous to us here because he gives us this really intimate window into one of Jesus' last moments, a really intimate conversation with his disciples who have significant questions about what's going to happen to their teacher in their life. And we get a lot of insight in chapter 14. So if you have your Bible with you, if you're scrolling it on your phone, you may want to pull it up because I'm going to reference a lot of things out of John 14. Now for us, I, I get it that learning to study scripture from a, um, an informed point of view is essential to interpreting scripture well. It's important to ask questions of who wrote it, why did they write it, where were they when they wrote it, who were they writing it to, and when we read a chapter, to read what comes before and what comes after to get a sense of flow and context. That's good Bible study tools. It's important. But I would also contend that it's equally important to do the valuable devotional work of putting ourselves into the narrative that we read. To actually try to imagine what would it be like if I was one of the disciples in that circle. How would I be taking in the words of Jesus? And it's really difficult to do that when you're on a journey. The contexts that we read about are so, so different from our modern minds. And also I think what hangs us up is that we're so familiar at times with these stories that we read over them and kind of fly through them, not really considering the nuance, stopping to think about what would it be like if we were in the story. That's why when people go to Jerusalem and they come back, they change. Because the context of what you're reading suddenly comes to life. You really get how far away the Mount of Olives is and how long it would take to get there. You're in the garden and suddenly it changes the way that you read the text. That's why things like the Jesus thing is so important. But a highly active imagination will get you there as well. So we're going to lean into that a little bit today. I'm not taking you to Jerusalem. I'm going to say right here, okay? So our text in John 14, it gives us an opportunity to do some work. Because we need to work just a little bit to um, add our own sense of what the disciples would have been perceiving. The reason that we have to work a little bit at this is because we have a significant privilege. We know the rest of the story. 
So when we read the disciples' interaction with Jesus, we know what's to come. We know how Judas is going to go. We know that Jesus is going to die a gruesome death, and there will be these long, sad moments in between that death and the tomb being found empty. We know that the women go to spread the good news that Jesus has resurrected. We know that Jesus comes and visits them with his superhuman body, that he ascends to heaven and appears to them in his glory. We know all of that. In fact, that is the story that I would guess for most of us shapes our lives. It is the most important story to us. It's the gospel. But what we need to do to actually grasp what's happening here in John is we have to suspend all of that knowledge a little bit, that we need to hold the rest of the story and pull ourselves in. We need to hold ourselves to a pre-crucifixion, like a pre-resurrection pace. Because without those narratives that we know so well, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, the Holy Spirit, without all that, and we try to actually envision what the disciples are going through in this conversation, I think Jesus comes off pretty difficult. He's not making a lot of sense to them. He certainly would be super confusing. His cryptic words would have given someone like me tremendous anxiety. I do not do well like you do. I like things better. I think this is why God gave me a boss like you, Pastor Jennifer. He is like a classic wise dad. Think Yoda, Dumbledore, Gandalf. Take your pick. They say things without really saying them. You know what I mean? Like they leave you right there, and then you have to figure it out. This is sometimes Jude's preaching. It makes you work for it. This is also staff meetings with Jude and my one-on-ones with Jude. Like, yep, I think I got what you're saying. So all good teachers do this. I can't say that I love it, but it's good for me, and it's good for us. So I really resonate with the disciples here. And Jesus, he answers this classic wise Dave all throughout this conversation. He gives them no pat, easy answers to any of the three disciples' questions, the questions that come at him. He makes them work for it. And while this could certainly be aggravating for them, it produces a deeper devotion here. It invites them to work out the answers with him. So perhaps you're like me, and if you think about this story, it might make you get a little sweaty as you think about trying to understand Jesus' words. But also, you might be the kind of temperament that when you don't understand something or feel that there's ambiguity, you check out, and you check back in when it gets a little more easy to understand. Maybe you'd be frustrated. And because I think the disciples were a bit frustrated, not knowing what was going on. Because the disciples know enough to know that things are not good. The religious leaders are getting bolder. The crowds are getting bigger. Politicians are starting to make friends. And I think that they are very appropriately concerned. And that's why in, in the beginning of the chapter here, 14.1, Jesus speaks these words to them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, and then believe also in me. He starts his speech that way. And I think we often quote this. I know I certainly speak this over myself. I've spoken it over many people because it offers such great clarity. It's important to understand. And the word believe here is important to unpack just a little bit. In the original language, in the Greek in which this is written, sakuate. And what that means is, is a bit beyond our sense of belief. It's more like 
trust him. We could even interpret that as keep on trusting in me. So what Jesus is saying to them is you don't have to hug each other. Trust in me. Keep on trusting in me as you keep on trusting in God. And right after he delivers this powerful word of comfort, he goes on and gives other words immediately that are comforting and powerful. He says things like this. Where I am, you will be also. He tells them, I, I will come again. And you know the way to where I'm going. So he's offering them in a row right here in the beginning of chapter 14. So many words of comfort. So many promises. And then we come to verse 5. And I'll call this exhibit A of why I love these friendly interactions so much. Because Thomas follows up all this prophetic comforting goodness with a pretty neurotic but I think helpful he says Lord we don't know where you're going so how do you know the way and I think this is a little bit like the equivalent of buddy we lost it okay we literally don't know what you're talking about do you know what he's talking about that's kind of how I feel this is going down and I love exchanges like this. They're wonderfully human. It reminds us that Jesus is human. And he has real human friends that push back on him and don't understand him and get confused. Maybe even aggravated, just like we do with our little human interactions. So we hear Thomas's question, and he continues with what I will call a vague clarity. And he kind of clears things up, okay? He says to Thomas, because I am the way. Now, I wonder if this actually cleared much up because Philip slides right into the picture with the New Testament. As Jesus is talking about being the way, he incorporates language about his father. So he sort of answers Thomas. Thomas says, how do we know the way? How could we know it? And Jesus says to him, I am the way. But then he starts to wrap in this fairly confusing language about the relationship between him and the father, which indicates that the father is not only the destination, but also part of the way which is Jesus, so does that clear things up? Not really. And so, Philip understandably gets right to the point. Every group needs a pragmatist, said Philip. It's just ask what needs to be asked. And Philip essentially says, great, then show us the Father and we will be good. Now this gets a mixed response from Jesus as well. Philip is asked by Jesus, will you consider what you know about God? And then or consider, excuse me, consider what you know about me, Jesus, and then consider that that might also be true of you. So that's how Jesus answers him. And I, I'm going to interject here just another privilege that we modern readers in 2019 bring to the text. We have inherited a good couple thousand years of Christian tradition, that set of finely honed beliefs that gives us a foundation to what I'll call a common set of beliefs as Christian people. And while it remains a mystery to us still, for sure, the Trinity is at least a concept that we're familiar with. Right? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Three in one. Got it. But this would not be so with the disciples. Like some of them, some of the Jewish believers, they would have had a God concept, but not all of them. And all of them, for the most part, are on board with who they see in Jesus right in front of them. 
they don't have the same conception of one God, three forms, one God, three persons as we do. So this is really important that we get this. As we read this section of scripture and try to understand it, we see here that Jesus is working very, very hard to help them understand the interrelatedness of him and God, the source of all life. So, as if this rhetoric of, if you know me, then you know my father, language was not already throwing them for a loop, Jesus goes ahead and sprinkles in more. He says that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he hints at it coming soon. This would be a lot to take in. Because Jesus says that this spirit of truth that's coming is going to live in them. So I want you to catch this, that he's going to great lengths to elaborate on how he is in the Father, and the Father is in him, and that the Spirit will come and be in them. There is profound emphasis just with that word in, on relationship. In this very short section of scripture, just verses 1 through 14, it is literally a jam-packed, cram-full section of what I would call mutual indwelling relational language. It took me like less than one minute to make a very quick list of this mutual indwelling that's happening just in I am 1 through 14. Things like believe in God, believe also in me. Where I am, you will be also. Know me, know the Father. See me, see the Father. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. You will do the works that I myself do. Ask in my name. The Father is glorified in the Son. You can ask in my name. That's not all that's in there even. It's just the quickest little grab of about ten examples of this mutual indwelling that Jesus has. And John is showcasing it here for us as the writer of this book has a new work of that power. Did the disciples grasp this radical indwelling relationship? That as God is in Jesus, Jesus could also be in us. And then if Jesus is in us, then we could be in him as he is in the Father. In and in and in and on and on and on. John is reinforcing this as an explicit way to set up another mind-blowing passage that something called the Holy Spirit will also come and will also indwell us. When Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in this passage, he uses the word advocate. And the word for advocate, again, will lean on the original Greek as paralegal there. And we can break that word down into two different sections to try to understand it a little bit better. So para, the first part of that word, means from close beside. It's the proximity of something. It means nearness. And then the second part of that word comes from kaleo. And kaleo means to make a call, not a phone call, no phones back then, to make a judgment call, all right? So if we cram this together, what we get when we put these concepts together is one who makes a right judgment call because they're close enough means to give aid or to intercede for someone in a way Jesus formed because you've been at a close distance. So Jesus is promising that an advocate, one who will be so close 
that this advocate could make a call on our behalf is humbling. And something that stuck out to me fresh as I read through this, as I listened to it over and over again, is an advocate that comes before. Because Jesus is talking about the advocate, but something really significant is that he says, I want you to expect another advocate. Another advocate. This Holy Spirit advocate is going to build on the life ministry of the first advocate. The one who was sent by God to walk among us, to know us, to intercede for us, to aid us. The advocate who is Jesus himself. The original advocate. And there would be no set of people than the disciples to better know the advocacy activity and courage of Jesus Christ. They were with him, all of them were his crew. They stood next to him as he sincerely listened to and held their questions like a good advocate would. They watched him quiet storms, touch the dead, pray for the mentally ill and the leprous. On Sabbath, they saw him cry when friends died. They, so he challenged the ruling Pharisees on Sabbath laws with so many other things. But he spoke to children. But he turned over tables in the synagogue. He preached about an upside-down kingdom in which the last will be first. He washed feet. He fed thousands who were hungry. He said that the poor would be blessed. On and on. These are incredible advocate qualities that Jesus lived consistently throughout his ministry. A radical advocate. And the disciples would have known that more than anyone. So as he's telling them, that the very advocacy that they have observed of his life on their behalf countless times will, will not only remain with them, but actually in them when another advocate comes, this new reflection of Jesus, they can take heart that this new advocate is going to defend them too, but also will fill them with an advocacy power that the world around them needs. It's a big concept that I think we struggle to grasp Still, and they certainly had a difficult time grasping it. So Judas, not the one who betrays, the other Judas, he asks a question. And he asks for specifics. He says, okay, okay, but like how, right? How will you show us you? He wants something more concrete. And again, Jesus continues to talk about what to expect in this advocate. That's the how. He tells them directly and directly that the advocate will teach you all that you will need to know. The advocate will also remind you of all the things that I've already said to you and done. And the advocate will bring you a deep, deep peace unlike anything that you've ever known. So what he's saying is the advocate will go with you into the future and teach you new things. But the advocate will also take you back to the past and remind you of me and my life and ministry. And no matter what you go through, a peace that you cannot even explain will be with you in the form of this advocate. And as Jesus wraps up this speech, this talk with his friends, he finishes where he began, this wonderful book of his. And he tells them again, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't fear. Give me your worries, and I will bring you joy. Just listen. of the Trinity, and we have our metaphors like the egg or the three forms of water to try to understand it, 
I'd say that the Trinity is still just as mysterious a concept to us now as it was to the disciples. But what we do know about the Trinity very clearly, and this passage reinforces it over and over again, is that the Trinity is relationship. It is love. And this Trinity was their different kind of gift. The disciples wanted Jesus. Jesus in a form that they could touch and talk to. They wanted him to stay with them just a little bit longer. They knew something was about to happen. They wanted him to keep talking and explain himself a little bit more. They wanted to grow old alongside Jesus. That's the gift they wanted. And what they got was the spirit. He was Jesus, but not intimacy. They got this really mystical, beautiful gift of intimacy, which not only confused them, it absolutely captivated them. And it's the same with us. This is our different kind of gift as well. We may want a tangible Jesus that we, we can sit across the table from and hug with and talk with, ask questions of, go fishing with, kind of thing. But we got the spirit too. We get spirit who teaches us in such a quiet and encouraging way. The spirit who reminds us of the words of Jesus when they mean it. Clothes come from deep in the places that we didn't think. The spirit who is so close to us, as close as could possibly be, in us, who makes such good calls on our behalf. The advocate who's correcting us and befriending us and leading us to all get the spirit who holds our honest hearts, doubts, and questions. And amidst all that, gives us a demonstration of it. Just as the disciples received, so do we receive the gift of an unexplained but unmistakable, intimate indwelling between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Inside all this interrelatedness caught up in this eternal game inside of us. Yes, with us, but more importantly, in us. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? God, we find ourselves in the stories of the disciples over and over again. This group of human people just like us who are drawn to you, who are taken with you, who hear your words, believe you, and trust you, but at the same time have questions, don't feel that we quite get it, may not feel worthy. We want to know everything before it happens for us. And we pray, God, that this morning your word inspires us to ask you our questions, but be open to the ways in which you might answer us unexpectedly. And would we take great heart and great comfort in the fact that you have given us you to be with us, near enough to us, to know us intimately, but with us in even more. We thank you for your life and ministry. We thank you for the way that you indwell us in 